This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on the rise of socialism in America in the early 20th century, taught by Columbia University professor Eric Foner. This episode was recorded in 2012. This is a class at Columbia University, a course called the American Radical Tradition. And we started with the American Revolution and uh, have been going through the abolitionist movement, early feminism, the Civil War Reconstruction, labor conflict in the Gilded Age, the populist movement, and now we're sort of entering into the 20th century. And in the next couple of weeks, we will look at the progressive era, a period of, um, you know, a lot of labor unrest, the industrial workers of the world, the women's suffrage movement coming to the fore, um, municipal reform, many other things. But today, our subject is the or the Socialist Party, the rise of socialism as a key element of American radicalism in the early 20th century. Uh, in our, on our reading list, the chapter by Michael Kazin gives a good, quick summary of this moment and the various kinds of socialism at that time. From 1860, at least, onward, there had been some kind of socialist presence in the United States but largely confined to immigrants from Europe, uh, particularly Germans, English. Um, The emergence of a mass socialist movement with a real base in the American political system uh, followed the final, you might say, flowering of the 19th century radical tradition in the 1880s and 90s and the defeat of the populist party in the 1890s the inheritors of 19th century radicalism were forced to kind of think about new ways of confronting the problems and the inequities of the, you know, rapidly changing industrial society of that time. Now, it's often said uh, by people who write about the history of socialism that American socialism was uh, particularly untheoretical. Uh, unlike European or other kinds of socialism, uh, very, very few Americans produced theoretical works about this. Many more socialists here were influenced by their experience in populism or the Bellamy movement, remember, or the, just the experience of the labor movement than by reading uh, Karl Marx's Das Kapital or other works like that. Nonetheless, by the turn of the century, All socialism, and there are many varieties, as we'll see, in some way or another derived from the thinking and writings of Karl Marx, although interpreted in very different ways. Uh, One could give a whole course on the thinking of Karl Marx, which I'm not going to do, but what people learned from Marx was, first of all, that history is the history of class struggle. The struggle between classes is the driving force of history, he claimed that under capitalism, the society is being divided inexorably into two classes, the working class or proletariat and the bourgeoisie or the owning capitalist class. Production is inevitably being concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, giant corporations. Um, and um, the gap between the, what I guess today they call the 1% and the 99%, the gap between the, very, the rich and everyone else would inevitably get wider and wider. Some of this resonates, of course, to the present day. Uh, 30 years of the 
administrations of Ronald Reagan and Bush and Clinton and Bush and Obama have done more to confirm Marx's prediction of the rich getting richer and everyone else falling behind than 75 years of the Soviet Union, perhaps. Um, the, what was appealing to Marx in Marx was that at the time, remember, of this dominant free contract ideology that the, which the Supreme Court and others were, you know, implementing, uh, social Darwinism, the idea that the marketplace is just a site where equal, equal participants compete and uh, the result is best for all, Marx kind of pierces through to the underpinning of the labor market and labor relations and shows that it's based on inequality, exploitation, and, um, you know, and wage earners not getting what they deserve, something that had, of course, been an idea floating around American radicalism for a long time. But what, he was, what was different about him, he insisted that capitalism was inevitably creating the, the instrument of its own destruction, that is what he called the proletariat, workers, whose coming self-awareness would lead them to seize power and sort of change the whole system. Not because they were any better than anyone else, but because their, the very nature of their social existence sort of made, it made them inexorably push toward changing the whole system. They cannot abolish, this is Marx, their own conditions of life without abolishing all the inhuman conditions of present day society. Now, oddly, in the year 2000 and soon after that, there was a kind of a flurry of a rediscovery of Karl Marx. In fact, the New Yorker at the time of the millennium of 2000 published an article saying, man of the 21st century, Karl Marx. Why? Because Marx, among other things, is the prophet of globalized capitalism. The man who saw through, to, saw that capitalism must expand to make itself a global, a global system. Unlike the previous, you know, m most previous American radicals, Marx analyzes capitalism as a system, not as bad individuals, not trusts, you know, corrupting the political system, not uh, non-producers kind of conspiring. The system itself has a logic which has to be understood. And in a way, you can put Marx, and many people do, in the same category of thinker as, let's say, Darwin. Darwin tried to understand the underlying principles of the natural world, or Freud a little later trying to understand the underlying principles of the internal human mind, Marx is trying to understand the underlying principles of the economic system, the un economic world. And um, the first principle is, as he says, I'm just going to read you a couple of sentences from the Communist Manifesto of, of 1848 where he lays out these, many, many more socialists read the Communist Manifesto, which is a, you know, political polemic, highly oversimplified, then waded through the three ultra-dense uh, volumes of Das Kapital. So what did they find when they turned to this manifesto? First, they found that the revolutionary element in the world is capitalism. Capitalism, the bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production and with them the whole relations of society. Conservation of the old modes of production in unaltered form was the first condition of existence for earlier industrial classes. 
constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions is what characterizes the present world, he says. All frozen relations um, are swept away. All new formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. And then, of course, this often quoted sentence, all that is solid melts into air. That, that is our condition right now. All that is solid melts into air. That's the essence of the, of the system, the constant revolutionizing of everything. So there's no nostalgia here, though. Marx is not like earlier radicals trying to go back to a previous golden age. There is no previous golden age. And the nature of life now is just this constant change of, of everything. And then, as I say, it's not a national system. The need for a constantly expanding market chases the bourgeoisie over the whole surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. The bourgeoisie has, through its exploitation of its world market, given a cosmopolitan character to production in every country. National industry is destroyed, he says. This is 1848. National industry destroyed is just getting going. Today, that's what's happening, of course. National industry is destroyed by the inexorable forces of globalization. This is more than 150 years later. All established national industries have been destroyed or are daily being destroyed. Moreover, in the place of old wants, satisfied by the production of the country, we find new wants requiring from their, for their satisfaction the products of distant lands and climes. National one-sidedness becomes more and more impossible. In other words, this, this is a global system, a global world, a global interchange, and that's good. This is not a critique. That is good. That is part of the progress of history because capitalism is creating the conditions in which a humane life is possible. It is overcoming the barriers of nature and population to massive production. The possibility for, wealth, for a, an equal or you know, fair distribution of wealth around the world is for the first time uh, created by, uh, by advanced capitalism, he says. Many people who read the Communist Manifesto are very surprised that most of it is based on praising capitalism for sweeping away all these old systems that are an obstacle to, um, to progress. Um, Marx, many of the people who followed Marx thought of him as scientific. Later on, it's called scientific socialism because he's trying to understand a system. But Marx is not a, it, there are very few predictions in Marx. Uh, much of his writing is, is analytical, not predictive. Um, and his predictions change over time, even though he, there is a teleology, what I mean that history is moving in a certain direction, um, it's not inevitable by any means, although later readers would see it as a, a kind of inexorable process toward a predetermined end. Uh, in the 1880s, the American journalist, labor journalist John Swinton, went to England and interviewed Marx, Karl Marx, and he asked Marx, uh, what do you see for the future? What do you see for the future? And Marx answered, thought for a minute, and answered in one word, struggle. The future will see struggle. He didn't say the end of that struggle is inevitable. He didn't say what that struggle is going to lead to. That's what he saw. So, uh, but as we'll see in a minute, many people saw in Marxism a kind of way of predicting the future, which I think is not really uh, the essence of... Uh, of what he's talking about. But the point is that the, 
the, the whole analysis suggested that once you marry the productive capacity, the radical productive capacity of socialism to a more equitable distribution and a more democratic control of the economy, it's a utopian world. I mean, it's sort of like Bellamy in a way, his utopian world, a world of plenty, a world of equality. Socialism appealed to people on an ethical level as much as on a kind of analytical level. It was an unbounded dream. Uh, Fourier had promised that people would be 10 feet tall under socialism. Uh, the Italian uh, socialist uh, Labriola said all, all children would grow up to be Galileos under socialism. And Marx had shown, according to people who followed him, that it was inevitable in a way. N not exactly inevitable, but it was the process of history working in that direction. Um, but ultimately, especially in the United States, the, the ultimate appeal of socialism is ethical, moral, as well as, as much as analytical and economic. Socialism said Eugene Debs will talk is simply uh, capitalism said Debs is simply wrong. The vast inequality is simply wrong. There's a kind of tr Christian underlying, you know, notion of morality beneath the sort of scientific um, analysis. Well, anyway, in the 1890s, we mentioned this last time, the main expression of socialism in the US was a, was the tiny Socialist Labor Party, headed by Daniel De Leon, who I mentioned last time. Um, De Leon, a very strange and difficult guy, was one of the first, actually, to think in the United States of some of the modern problems of radicalism. The rise of mass culture. What does that mean for alternative? Already you're getting, you know, mass newspapers and magazines and things like that. What, what, is, what should radicals do in a society where, you know, a certain dominant culture, this goes back to Goodwin, is kind of, you know, permeating the society. Well, he concluded that the way to do that is to form a uncompromisingly radical party of workers, a political party which would work with radical unions to, or, to mobilize workers, to get them to think in a radical way. Um, not a new idea, but he also concluded that the entire labor movement was uh, basically an obstacle to this, particularly the American Federation of Labor, which he said was uh, dominated by what he called labor fakers, who, um, and that the role, the immediate role of socialists, said De Leon, was to destroy the existing labor movement and create new radical unions. Well, you can imagine that the existing unions were not too happy with the notion that the role of socialism was to first destroy their unions. And some of them had joined the Socialist Labor Party in the 1890s, and then they said, well, wait a minute, why is my political party trying to destroy the union that I'm working with? So many of them left rather quickly, but de Leon was, as I say, his views actually, we'll, we'll see next time, would influence the industrial workers of the world which attempted to mobilize or organize those mass production workers which the American Federation of Labor had, uh, had left out. But when the Socialist Party of America is founded in 1901, De Leon and his little group is the one group of socialists who remain outside, who are not really part of this group. So who does come together in 1901 to form this umbrella group called the Socialist Party of America. Well, a, a conglomeration of people. 
After the defeat of Bryan in 1896, remember, uh, some uh, Bellamyites, followers of Eugene Debs and others had formed a group called the Brotherhood of the Cooperative Commonwealth. They had a plan to move en masse to some uh, western state with limited population and basically take over the state by people moving in. They thought maybe they'd plant colonies in the state of Washington or something. Um, didn't really get anywhere, but that's sort of the old communitarian you know, ethos. But this group, the Brotherhood of the Cooperative Commonwealth, is part of the, uh, a part of the, uh, uh, this socialist party. Um, many dis people who were disaffected from the, you know, by the failure of populism come in. Quite a few labor unions, but the American Railroad Union of Debs, mine workers, others come in. Um, and in 1901, as I say, under this umbrella, they formed the Socialist Party of America, a very small group. But within a decade or so, that is by 1912, or up to World War I, this is really the point here, between 1901 and World War I, which breaks out in 1914, but the U.S. doesn't enter until 1917, socialism grows to become a significant part of the political discourse in the United States, a, a factor in American life. Not a majority by any means, of course, but not a fringe sectarian group as it would later uh, uh, become. And the first thing we have to do to think about this is to remember my admonition, which I've mentioned before, to read history forward, not backward. You cannot understand the Socialist Party of the pre-World War I period without, in a sense, forgetting about World War I, the Russian Revolution, the Cold War, and many, many other things that will happen in the history of socialism and then communism, which will split socialism into sectarian groups, which will discredit it in many ways in the eyes of people. But nobody knows that's coming in the period from 1901 to 1914 or 1917. Um, today, socialism, to the extent that it exists at all in our political discourse, is just an all-purpose term of abuse, right? You hear on TV, Obama is a socialist, right? What do the people who say that mean? They don't actually understand either Obama or socialism. It's just a way of saying, I don't like Obama. So they, you know, I don't like this thing that he's done, that thing that he's done, fair enough. But to call him a socialist is absurd, but nonetheless, that is what the term, but so we have to go back before that, before all these events of the 20th century to understand in its own context, socialism of the, uh, of the early uh, uh, 20th century. And it's difficult to do because the historical literature uh, doesn't help us all that much. Um, Liberal historians, which is probably the majority, uh, is think socialism is kind of really irrelevant because the real story is the rise of 20th century liberalism from Woodrow Wilson through the New Deal of uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt and then on to the Great Society, etc. That's the trajectory, and socialism uh, is just irrelevant in, in next to that. Um, on the other hand, um, Communist historians who wrote in the 1930s, 40s, 50s saw the, social, saw the Socialist Party as lacking in revolutionary fervor. It seemed kind of moderate and mild compared to the radicalism of communists later on, so they didn't think much of it either.
But the fact is, as I say, that a broadly based socialist movement did exist in America in the two decades coming up to World War uh, I. At the height of their influence, uh, the Socialist Party had 150,000 dues-paying members. Today, to be a member of a political party, you just register and vote in the primary, but these were people who paid dues to the Socialist Party. There were hundreds of socialist newspapers scattered around the country. Debs, as we'll see in a minute, in 1912, polled nearly a million votes running for president uh, in the four-way presidential election of, of 1912. More than 1,000 public, uh, local public officials were elected by the Socialist Party from uh, places like uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, to Milwaukee, congressmen from New York, the, the, mostly in industrial areas, but also in the West, local socialist uh, legislators, et cetera, mayors, et cetera, et cetera. And when the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, had their annual conventions, at least one-third of the unions were headed by people who called themselves socialists of one kind or another. Moreover, the Socialist Party, as I say, was not a narrow fringe. It was a kind of umbrella through which many, in which many people passed or took part who were connected to other major movements at the time. Women's suffrage, for example, connected to the Socialist Party in some ways. Municipal reform, um, uh, labor legislation of this era, uh, demands for public ownership of utilities like streetcar lines and gas works and things like that. In other words, it was a broad, amorphous, in many ways, all-encompassing party, uh, and many leading figures of the time either were in it or connected to it or sort of sympathetic in some way or another. The idea of socialism was a rather vague idea to many people, but it was part of the political discourse. Now, as I say, the Socialist Party had many diverse elements, and there was often tension between them, but before looking at that, and often it's described as left versus right, you know, or radical versus reformer, or whatever you want to call it, within the Socialist Party, but what held the party together? One thing, you know, what did they hold in common? One central thread, which does take us back into the radical tradition of the 19th century, was a faith in education as the way to build a mass socialist movement. Marx wrote of socialism in the Communist Manifesto as a revolutionary doctrine, a doctrine of revolution. But the American socialists were not basically revolutionaries, although a few used revolutionary rhetoric. Most of them thought, just like the abolitionists and others, that the way social change would come was by education, was by convincing people, was by, um, you could convince people to be socialists by talking to them, by giving them things to read, et cetera, et cetera. As long as you did it in the language of American society, not in this European jargon, as many socialists said. Algie M. Simons, a leading socialist writer at the time, says, too long our socialist writings have been made up by the application of German metaphysics to English economic theory with a French vocabulary. The great task of socialist writers for the next two years is to interpret American experience in the language and style which will appeal to the American people. In a sort of straightforward, common sense, he said, non-theoretical, non-European language. And Simons himself tries to do this in some 
actually not uninteresting works of American history. Simons in 1905, I think it is, publishes the first socialist history of the United States called Class Struggles in American History, which is written in a very popular manner and is essentially a kind of, a, a, in a way it's borrowed from Frederick Jackson Turner, uh, who, who had developed the frontier thesis in the, uh, in the 1890s, uh, and, you know, saw American history starting in a very democratic mode and then eventually with the end of the frontier uh, and the rise of big corporations, great in inequality and, you know, leading up to some kind of socialist movement. But that's his effort to, um, to, to bring socialism in, in, to people in that kind of language. But so, the notion of education, though, is broader than that. It is, and, and we should understand this, actually, being in a great university like this. Socialists, Marxists thought, saw themselves as heirs of the Western tradition. This is hard to understand when today people see socialist ideas as kind of alien. This is the, they were the heirs of the Enlightenment, they felt. The heirs of the Western tradition and the socialism was part of the legacy of the Enlightenment. The rational, the effort to analyze society rationally and to understand it and to try to improve it. Um, back in the 1980s, I can't remember the name of this, there was one of these French movies, really boring, you know, a bunch of guys sitting around talking for two hours. That's it, that's the movie. I mean, low budget, true, but still, I kind of like these movies. But anyway, um, this was about the so-called new philosophers of that time, and one of them was asked in this movie by the narrator, well, do you think that Marx is dead? And his answer, I thought, was interesting. He said, well, if Marx is dead, that means Shakespeare is dead, Einstein is dead, and I'm not feeling all that well myself. <laughs> in other words, this is part of an intellectual heritage. Doesn't mean you have to accept it or not accept it, but you have to know it, you have to learn it find out what it is. And indeed, the socialist press, even though we're talking about Americanizing it, publish articles not only about Tom Paine and other radicals, but about Goethe, about Aristotle, about Plato. Education of workers is a general education. It's not just, I won't even, since we're on TV, I won't even comment on the notion that's floating around in our uh, political discourse today that people really don't need to go to college and learn anything, you know. Um, socialists believe they did need to learn. Even ordinary workers had a right to learn the best in the Western tradition and in political thought and in culture. High culture, they believed in high culture, not, not popular culture. Culture to them was high culture. In fact, now, see, we're getting now to the point of where my own family history begins to intersect with uh, the rest of history. And I once asked my mother, who grew up in this world of New York City socialism, about the Yiddish theater. And they, you know, and, and uh, she, they came, she came from a socialist family, immigrants from Russia, and they, did you go to the Yiddish theater as a kid? She said, the Yiddish theater? No, no, we, we went to see Shakespeare. We didn't want to go to the Yiddish theater. You, you know, now Shakespeare was actually done in Yiddish in some of those theaters. But in other words, the notion of high culture, of of the, the, you know, the, that this is part of what people are entitled to. Um, it can be rather condescending toward other, you know, the socialists didn't have much interest in like, let's say, other expressions like African-American culture, which is a thriving, you know, American 
product, product of our society. They weren't that interested in that. It was more this, 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 this higher enlightenment version of, of civilization. But that study to them insisted that, in fact, what Marx had suggested was happening. Monopolies, corporations were consolidating. Working class life was pretty bad in the early 20th century. Socialism was coming. That was the study. When, exactly how, they didn't know. But, the, but all these socialists sort of held that view of education and progress with a capital P. Now, this, the differences in the Socialist Party uh, are sometimes, as I say, described as left versus right, or um, maybe it's more, um, you know, political action versus other action. In a way, the same debate that took place among the abolitionists. How do you operate to change society, right? You know, do you work within the system for immediate reform, or do you try to make a standard of radical reform and not accept compromise? Um, what is the relationship between immediate change and long-term goals? Nobody has ever really solved this, but they all have uh, debated it. The problem in the U.S. is exacerbated by the fact that the official labor movement, the American Federation of Labor, headed by Gompers, is becoming more and more conservative at this time. Now, if you believe that the working class is the agent of change, well, how do you deal with a conservative labor movement? Do you just try to destroy it, like De Leon said? Or do you try to work with it in some way? Or do you try to build another labor movement, like the Industrial Workers of the World does, which we'll see uh, next time? Um, so the more moderate socialists wanted to make socialism relevant to the everyday life of, uh, of ordinary people by stressing immediate reforms. The Socialist Party platform, 1904, 1908, 1912, kind of fudged this by demanding both immediate reforms and long-term radical change. So, for example, the Socialist platform includes issues like public ownership of the railroads, free university education, not a bad idea, aid to the unemployed, government unemployed uh, assistance. Um, some of these have come about, right? The initiative referendum and recall, these progressive era reforms which would try to give people, ordinary people, more say in how government operates. But they also said at the same time, the class struggle is irreconcilable and the ultimate aim is to completely transform society, get rid of capitalism and have a socialist society in which the means of production are controlled by a democratic uh, state. Um, the more conservative, the, the so-called right-wing socialists were, you might say, evolutionists. You know, like they were like Bellamy, that this will just happen. You can read Marx to say, we don't really have to do much. Capitalism is evolving in this direction. Let's just wait for it to happen, right? The, it's the inexorable process of the system itself. So there's no need for a revolution or anything like that. Capitalism will just evolve into something better. So the trick is to just help it along, so to speak. This is what Kazin talks about as a teleology, as I said, right? The, the notion of history inexorably evolving in a particular known direction. Now, the so-called moderate or right-wing socialists, the two centers, the two great centers were New York City and Milwaukee. And since we are here in New York City, let's look a little bit at this great socialist culture 
that emerged in New York City in the pre were in World War I um, era, centered in German and particularly Jewish immigrants, immigrants from the Tsarist Empire who came in very large numbers in the 1890s and early uh, 20th century. Um, the foundation of Jewish socialism was the super exploitation of the Jewish working class, the garment workers, cloak makers, women workers in factory, in, in the sweatshops. The leaders were professional people like Morris Hillquit, Louis Boudin, these were writers, lawyers. Uh, Hillquit had graduated from NYU Law School. Um, they, these, the leaders were quite familiar with Marx, they'd studied him, and they interpreted him to mean that a revolution doesn't just come along, it, it, it's a slow process, um, and that the goal is to just propagate socialist ideas and run socialist candidates for office. That's the way you educate people, you run candidates for office. Um, here's a wonderful little uh, pla uh, a cartoon uh, from a, a Jew Yiddish newspaper of that time, here is Karl Marx, sort of as Moses, right? Leading the children of Israel into the promised land of socialism. So you're absorbing Marx into this Jewish heritage, right? This Yiddish radical heritage, somewhat brought over from, from, from Russia, in Hebrew, you know, uh, or in the Yiddish language. So there's Marx leading the children of Israel uh, to the promised land. Um, and New York City is a time here, uh, in New York City, the, the, as I say, the, I'm going to give you one other picture here, the, the workers, the working women, here's women in a sweatshop, okay, I'm not even sure what year this is, but the large numbers of immigrant women, actually a lot of Italian women too, working in these sweatshops at sewing machines, just producing clothing all the time, day and night, uh, for tiny wages, um, and, you know, the, their, their situation is the kind of seedbed of the rise of, of, of socialist organization and, and the labor movement, the, the uh, in, uh, ILGW, the Garment Workers Union, and, and, um, and others. The Lower East Side, that's where the, you know, in, in, in the year 1920, so many immigrants were living in Manhattan. The year 1920, the population density of Manhattan was greater than the city of Calcutta in India. There were, far, there were like almost three times as many people living on Manhattan Island then than there are now. Over two million people living on this little island. Packed in densely mostly into these working class districts way, way downtown. The Lower East Side elected Meyer London, a socialist, to Congress in 1914. Again, London, another guy speaking the language of socialism in the American tradition. Says London, just as the parties which preceded the Civil War, see, remember how much the abolition of slavery shapes this thinking of previous, of later radicals. Just as the, pre, the numerous parties which preceded the Civil War had the abolition of chattel slavery as its issue, um, Parties today divide on the issue whether the industrial oligarchy shall survive and democracy perish, or whether the republic will survive and wage slavery perish. The socialist movement is the abolitionist movement of the 20th century.
Great quote. The socialist movement is the abolitionist movement of the 20th century. This is about as American as you can get in terms of the trajectory of American radicalism. But in New York City, and not only in the Lower East Side, also up on in Yorkville, the Upper East Side, which was a heavily German population at that time, and not even, and even in some other districts, um, a full, vibrant socialist counterculture developed, something like Goodwin talked about vis-a-vis -vis the populists. Based on massive labor unrest, you had the strikes of 20,000 women garment workers in 1919, uh, in 1909, strike of 50,000 male cloak workers in 1911, I think, and many, many other strikes in New York City, which became kind of outpourings of community or inspired outpourings of community support. Here's, here's a description of 1916, the streetcar drivers went on strike in New York City. You know, we used to be crisscrossed with these streetcars before the building of all the subways. Um, the parade of striking streetcar workers from uptown Yorkville, like 86th and Lexington, down to Union Square, 14th Street. As they left Yorktown, relatives and friends of the marchers cheered for two hours. Great throngs lined Madison and 4th Avenue, and the head of the line reached the cloak-making district below 34th. The windows of the factories were black with workers. Men ceased work on buildings uh, to cheer as the car men passed. Teamsters parked their wagons on the side streets. Even the policemen grinned and openly manifested their pleasure at the parade. There were, this was an era of constant parades, it seemed, in New York City. There were election parades, there were eight-hour day parades um, with musical entertainment from around the world, like the Marseillaise of France and things like that. There was a protest parade of over 100,000 people in 1911, um, after one of the great disasters of this era, which last year had its 100th anniversary, the Triangle Fire, down in Greenwich Village, where over a hundred, um, I think 146 w young women, Jewish and Italian, were killed when a fire broke out in this triangle shirtwaist factory, which was on the top couple of floors of a eight or nine story building. This is a picture I like because it's not, it doesn't seem very dramatic. It's just people looking up at this fire, but these are the dead bodies of women who had leaped to avoid the flames and are now lying on the ground, you know, leaped, uh, fell eight, eight, eight stories because the, um, the ladders on the fire trucks would only reach up to the fifth floor. They could not rescue anyone. The, the Triangle Fire uh, led to the first serious efforts in New York to regulate conditions of work. This, the, 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 the city and state moving in to um, begin the process of actually trying to make sure safety, you know, safe working conditions and things like that. But as I say, it, it kind of galvanized a tremendous protest uh, in New York City. Now, the Socialist Party also, this was an era of different politics. There were no TV, as you all know, no internet, no big campaign ads. People campaigned door to door and on street corners. The Socialist Party was very adept at what they called street corner speaking. And the Socialist Press in New York uh, the New York Call, for example, daily newspaper, published uh, commentaries on different street corners and what, what should you say on these street corners? You know, what kind of people live around there? How do you spread the message? Well, for example, 
92nd, 96th and 2nd Avenue over on the east side. Theoretical and Marxian speeches don't go down well on this corner. Keep it simple. 35th and Broadway. The non-religious character of the Socialist Party should be hammered home in this district. And then one Irish neighborhood that it's talking about. Um, religious discussions, no matter how well conducted, have no place in propaganda meetings here. Kill capitalism. Let the other fellow kill God. Right? Don't worry about that. Just deal with capitalism. Don't get into religious uh, controversies, okay? One of the most popular street corner speakers in New York for the socialists was a guy named Gerald M. Fitzgibbon. Gerald Fitzgibbon. And um, this is an account of Fitzgibbon as a speaker, a memoir from that period. Fitzgibbon, the street corner soapbox speaker, never used mysterious phrases. For one hour, he was funny, much funnier than any vaudeville, vaudeville uh, act. When he described how the rich lived, the audience nearly died laughing. When he described how the poor suffered, they laughed too. He would start with a working man getting up at dawn to go to work, his sloppy breakfast, the dingy streetcar, the filthy shop, the fat foreman, the hasty lunch, the weary afternoon, the ride home, the rush to the, the, the hungry wife and kids, the noise of the street, six days of it. Work, work, work. Work, eat, sleep. Work, eat, sleep. Whatever Marx may have said, Fitzgibbon knew his stuff. This was just the way my friend's fathers lived, like dogs. And when the audience was tired of laughing, he would shout, fools, how long will you stand this slavery? And then he went on to explain, quote, the economics of capitalism. The trouble was the people who worked were robbed by the people who owned the means of production and, lived on, and who lived on the wealth produced by those who operated the means of production. Clear? What was the solution? Abolish the system. Turn the private ownership of the mines, factories, and railways over to the people. Very simple. Fitzgibbon was a very popular uh, uh, speaker, obviously. So the point is, here in New York, the socialism was a movement that transcended the, the division between workplace and public place. It existed in the public as well as in the, in the shop. It transcended ethnic boundaries. Um, not all Irish, some Irish, Fitzgibbon himself, not that many, but many of the immigrant ethnic groups were, were attracted to the Socialist Party. And, and this is very, very important um, in terms of, it was internationalist, internationalists. Socialism is the first American radical movement that thinks of itself fully as part of an international movement. Now remember, the abolitionists had had connections with England. They were transatlantic, no question about it. Women's suffrage advocates, back and forth. But the socialists were, were global, in a sense. They, the socialist newspapers talked about the Irish struggle for independence. They talked about India and anti-colonialism. They talked about the Russian Revolution when it happened. They talked about the liberation of the Jews in, in uh, the need for the liberation of the Jews in, in the, Tsarist, um, the Tsarist Empire. They taught people that they were part of a worldwide movement, a worldwide problem. So they spoke an American language, but it was not a kind of exceptionalism which said, we are so superior to everybody else that we don't have to think about anything that's happening in other countries. And they did, despite what I said, bridge the gap between high culture and maybe a mid middle, middle culture. Um, many writers were associated with the socialists. They had 
public events. Isadora Duncan, for example, you know, the pioneer of the 20th century dance. You would not have dance that exists today without Isadora Duncan. Came to New York from California and gave benefit performances for the Socialist Party. They were at the they were at the cutting edge, so to speak, of culture, um, as well as of you know of of a polit political political thought. There was even, believe it or not, a socialist presence at New in Columbia University. Here's an article from the New York Times, January fifteenth, nineteen eleven. Stayed Columbia, shelter socialist. Professor Boyson is one. I, I don't know who this guy was. But here's what it says about Professor Boyson. Uh, a professor at Columbia was lecturing some time ago at one of the smaller New England colleges. He made, in the course of his remarks, some somewhat radical observations. After the lecture, one of the other professors came to discuss his theories with him. I would have been surprised, said this gentleman, to hear a college professor setting forth such ideas, except that you are from Columbia. <laughs> we, all, we all know how, how radical Columbia men are. No women at Columbia at that time. And then he goes on, I'll finish. The university is not radical. The president and the trustees are perfectly prepared to stand in the old paths and uh, for an indefinite period. But there are these uh, uh, radical, and not only that, when Eugene Debs spoke on socialism before the students at Columbia, the audience that wanted to hear him was so large that none of the university halls was big enough. So socialism had a presence all in the, even in the oddest places. Um, all right, so the other great center of what is called moderate right wing, whatever kind of socialism, non-revolutionary, was Milwaukee. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The leader there was a man named Victor Berger, German-born, a teacher, politician, newspaper editor, who in the 1890s had formed the Social Democratic Society of Milwaukee uh, with close ties to the populist movement and the trade union, the American Federation of Labor uh, Trade Unions in Milwaukee, and brought his group into the Socialist Party in 1901. And Berger said, what socialists have to do is win the allegiance of the unions, the trade unions, particularly the skilled craft unions, and to win election in local offices. That's the way to get to socialism. Win the confidence of unions, run candidates for office. And um, when you get into office, you govern in a good way and you win people's confidence. Again, it's an evolutionary process. We educate, he says. We enlighten. We reason. Besides order, we also bring law, reason, discipline, and progress. In other words, socialism offers a way out of the conflict that is racking American society. We bring law, reason, discipline. Berger disliked talk of revolution. The social democrats, he said, do not expect success from a revolution. That is a riot. He sees revolution as just a kind of aimless riot, a bigger or smaller riot. But from a real revolution, the revolution of mind, you convince people that's a revolution, not just taking to the streets, he says. And the Social Democrats refuse to break off the thread of history at any one place. History is an evolution. It's a, it's a seamless web. It doesn't just break at a certain place, as people advocating revolution want, says, says um, Berger. 
Berger offered socialism, as I say, as a way to prevent class conflict from degenerating into barbarism, as had happened in Caesar's Column. Remember the great book of Donnelly, which ends with the world being destroyed, basically, by a class uprising. Socialism is the way to avoid that um, and to have evolu a peaceful evolution to a better society. Moreover, the concentration of industry was creating the conditions for socialism. Capitalism was doing the socialist work. It was bringing more and more production under fewer and fewer hands, and eventually you just take it over, and that'll, that'll be the end of that. Moreover, Berger said socialism is an economic change. It's not a social change. He was, unlike the New York socialists who were rather tied in with the women's movement, Berger is a very strict family man, patriarchal. The socialist family will be upstanding with the man, you know, the head of the family and the woman at home. He's rather racist. He, he's certainly anti-black, um, and has, there are very few blacks in Milwaukee at that time, but he, he can use racist language like any other politician at this time. Um, and Milwaukee is the best example of what is called municipal socialism. That is socialism at the city level. They, the socialists win control of Milwaukee. Emil Seidel is elected as mayor of Milwaukee as this, for the Socialist Party. And they actually govern quite well. In fact, ironically, the credit rating of Milwaukee rises under the Socialist Administration. Why? Because unlike the main parties, they're not stealing everything. They're not, a they're not corrupt. They're not a political machine. They're not ripping off everything. If you loan money to the socialist government, you're likely to get it back. And so, and he, he run, people are impressed with his honesty. He, Emil Seidel is reelected not because everyone's a socialist, but because he ran a good, honest municipal government. But he also provides aid to the unemployed. He arbitrates strikes. He refuses to allow the police to intimidate uh, strikers. Uh, they improve public health. This is very typical progressive era urban reform trying to get control of the chaotic situation of the new industrial cities, and the Socialist Party is part of that movement in many cities. Schenectady, New York, Reading, Pennsylvania, Bridgeport, you can run down city after city in which socialist administrations come to power and basically operate as progressive era reformers. Uh, many other socialists said this is not good enough. Walter Lippmann, later a great journalist starting out at this time as a writer, uh, as a socialist, says, um, if socialists are to make anything of political action, we have to distinguish ourselves from the progressives. We have to at least cut the returns to property. In other words, try to cut down on the profits of, of, of business. But no, they didn't try to do that. They tried to run a good, honest government based on the skilled unions, uh, the AFL unions, the native-born, white, it's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an old-fashioned kind of uh, working class, particularly German immigrants and their children, um, in, uh, which is governing in Milwaukee and in other cities. Now, Berger's position is anathema to what we call the left of the socialist, of the socialist party. Um, industrial unionists like Bill Haywood, we'll talk about him next time, who say, no, what socialists have to do is organize the unorganized workers, the unskilled workers, the factory, the workers on the factory floor, the workers who are left out of the American Federation uh, of, of Labor skilled, uh, skilled organizations. 
um, lift up the lowest ranks of labor. Haywood said the social, the Milwaukee is not socialist. They're just uh, middle-class reformers. They're no different than, than anyone else. Um, the left was strongest, first of all, in places where socialism was weaker, where there's no chance of winning elections. You may tend to gravitate toward a more ideologically pure and radical uh, position, particularly in the West. So the Haywood comes out of the West, the mining regions uh, of Colorado, Idaho, uh, et cetera, some of the old populist regions. Those are the centers of the, of the left wing, so to speak, of the Socialist Party. They, they said the problems we have to address are those of the unskilled worker, the small farmer, the new immigrant, and the new factory uh, proletariat. Um, Electing people to office is not the solution. The left insisted more on workplace conflict. That was how to improve, you know, to increase socialist, uh, idiot, socialist commitment and, you know, change society, not by electing people to office. Again, they were strong in these mining areas, the, the, the timber workers of places like Washington and Oregon. These were places where the class struggle was raw really raw, right in your face. Mines, you know, pretty violent. Uh, timber workers living in these isolated communities, uh, often uh, with, with, you know, bitter labor struggles. Um, unlike in the East, where workers were, you might almost say, had made an accommodation with capitalism uh, through the AFL, etc. Debs, when he ran for president in 1912, got one-third of his vote west of the Mississippi River. That's where the, in the Trans-Mississippi West, that's where the, the centers of more radical socialism are. The strongest was actually Oklahoma. Not a state we tend to associate today with socialist proclivities. But uh, that's where Debs did the best. That's where the populist tradition flows into the early socialist party where farm tenancy is very uh, rapid, uh, uh, is, is very extensive. And remember, Oklahoma is a sort of segregated state, but it had not been part of the old Confederacy. It doesn't have the kind of weight of the Civil War sitting on political alignments, the way states like Louisiana or Georgia, et cetera, you know, making it difficult for any insurgency. Oklahoma um, gave Debs 16%, one-sixth of the vote in 1912. Um, in, 19, uh, in fact, Debs was very popular among the prisoners in Oklahoma. The warden of the state penitentiary in Oklahoma took a poll and found that a majority of the white prisoners voted for Debs. A majority of the black prisoners still would have voted for uh, the Republicans, the party of, um, of Lincoln. The other stronghold, as I say, is, uh, of the left is up there in the states of like Montana, Washington, Idaho, Nevada, all those states, Debs got over 10% of the vote from mine workers, timber workers, uh, people, people like that. Um, these Westerners were suspicious of the, what they considered the excessive respectability of Eastern socialists like, like um, Berger or like the New York City uh, uh, socialists. For example, in 1912, the National Convention of the uh, Socialist Party was held in Indianapolis. And um, Jacob Pankin, a Jewish delegate from New York City, had arranged to have a dinner with a group of Oregon delegates. And they kind of walked around Indianapolis looking for an appropriate restaurant. Um, 
Pankin saw a place that looked pretty nice. He said, why don't we go in there? And the Aragon said, no, 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 no. We're not going in a place with tablecloths. Too, too bourgeois. No tablecloths for us. So they finally picked a place called the Red Devil. For, not for its cuisine, for its, for its name, which sort of sounded kind of, um, kind of radical. But um, so the ballot in the East, they thought at least you could, to elect people, you would help, you know, if you controlled municipal government, you could at least prevent the police from being used against strikes, etc. But the, the, the Western socialists uh, distrusted these victories uh, in Milwaukee uh, and uh, as not really, uh, not really socialist uh, in essence. Finally, standing with one foot in each camp and the only leader around whom the socialists could unite uh, nationally was Eugene Debs, the greatest of all the socialist leaders. Here is Debs um, addressing a very large crowd. He's way over on the left there in, um, in, in Chicago. In Chicago, yeah. I'm not sure what part, but this is in a park in Chicago. Debs speaking to a large large crowd. Um, Debs was a symbol of both the class consciousness and the idealism of socialism. He came out of the American Railroad Union, remember, which had suffered the great defeat in 1894 of its national strike because of the use of federal troops and injunctions. Debs and Gompers, the two leading labor figures of the 1890s, went their separate ways. They both confronted devastating defeats in the 1890s. Gompers via the Amalgamated Association and, and, and um, Homestead, remember, the crushing of the craft union, Debs through the defeat of the American Railroad Union, they drew two different conclusions. Gompers drew the conclusion you've got to make a deal, so to speak. You can't fight the system. You've got to work within it. Debs went toward socialism. He was not a socialist in the 1890s. He became a socialist because the only way to confront the power of the corporations was to use political power against them. That was the only countervailing power in the society. Use the power of the state to confront the power of the, of the corporations. Both of them in their own way reflect the exhaustion of the earlier uh, 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 types of, radical, uh, uh, of radicalism. Debs was a Democrat, a genuine Democrat with a small d. A, a, he was a leader, he believed he was a leader, but he says, I would not, in one speech he says, I would not lead you to the promised land if I could, because if I could lead you in, someone else can lead you out. Movements are not made by leaders. Change is not made by leaders. Um, it's made by mass organization, he says, and he's willing to be the spokesman for that. Debs is sort of suspicious of the American Federation of Labor. He works, we'll see next time, with the industrial workers of the world. But he also is a unifying uh, factor in the, um, in the Socialist Party. Um, but he goes way beyond that. During his career, he literally spoke to millions of Americans. He was beloved by far, far more people than voted uh, a socialist. Uh, he was quintessentially American. I mean, he came from Indiana. Um, he, um, he spoke the language of American society, even to the point of telling dialect jokes and things like that. Um, but he was the guy, he was beloved by the Jewish immigrants of New York City and the prairie populists 
of Kansas and Nebraska and, um, and, and Oklahoma. Because Debs' socialism was what you might call the socialism of the heart. He was not theoretical. He, he, he just spoke the language of outrage against injustice. That's what Debs spoke of. Capitalism was, and he drew, to do that, he drew on American language, the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, and Christian language. He himself was not a religious man at all. Uh, he was more of a reader, a follower of Thomas Paine. But, um, but it's it kind of Christian radicalism of, you know, Jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple and things like that. Um, the, the, the evil of, of, of riches. Um, he opposed talk of violence, of sabotage. He spoke, he said, again, socialism has to come through democratic means, through election, through organization. And, uh, you know, maybe um, the best way to summarize him is through his great speech. We'll hear more about this. In 1918, when he is jailed for opposing American involvement in World War I, um, he gives his famous speech at his sentencing uh, where he says, while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. While there, was so, while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. So he sort of puts himself as the representative of the, you know, the oppressed groups in American society. But Debs is not a politician. Even though he runs for president over and over again, he's not really a politician. He's not interested in the internecine battles within the Socialist Party. And as a result of that, Generally speaking, at, at the national party level, which is really not where the party operates, the sort of conservative, more right-wing or moderate socialists are in control. But at the grassroots, there's always this, this battle. Finally, there's one other element, a rather obscure element of the party called the foreign language federations. Immigrants who organize socialist federations in their own foreign, in their own la indigenous language, and often, because they did not speak English, and they had their own newspapers, their own publications, and often the other socialists had no idea what they were doing or saying. I mean, you had to read Finnish if you wanted to find out what the Finnish Socialist Federation was doing. So they were kind of out there uh, as, uh, as a, you know, as a kind of a wild card group uh, organizing socialism among various immigrant groups. I mentioned the Finns because they were one of the most radical groups. I don't know if anyone here has a Finnish ancestry, but up in the upper, in the upper Midwest, in, in Michigan, in the mining areas, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Finns are a major part of the, so the Finnish Federation, a major part of the socialist movement. Uh, one might almost say that the two biggest groups in the socialist movement of new immigrants, not the Germans, are immigrants from the Russian Empire. Jews and Finns. Finland at that time is part of the Tsarist Empire. People who flee the Tsarist Empire are pretty riled up about things and maybe more, uh, more attracted to socialism. I once went to a paper at a conference about this given by a woman who had grown up in a Finnish radical family and she's talking about her, this is a while ago, her mother who had been an immigrant before World War I and I guess this woman was born here but she said they brought their, you know, the, the Finns brought their radicalism with them, she says. My mother's ambition, my mother's dream for me was that I would be the person who assassinated the Tsar. <laughs> That's what you have. You want to grow up and do something useful? Assassinate the Tsar. That, then you make, your, make, make something good of yourself. 
Um, there were also Slavic federations, Italian federations, uh, but that's a whole other group in the Socialist Party, and a lot of people, it's hard to even know what exactly they were doing. So anyway, in 1912, 100 years ago, right, we are, we are entering now a presidential campaign, which will last, we're in it, will last till November. 1912 was one of the most momentous presidential campaigns in American history. Remember the four-way campaign, very unusual in American politics. The only other time we had four credible candidates for president was 1860, I think. So you had President William Howard Taft representing the sort of mainstream Republicans. You had ex-president Theodore Roosevelt, right, running as the candidate of the new progressive party. Roosevelt had broken off from uh, the Republicans on the grounds that uh, uh, Taft was undermining some of his progressive reforms from when he had been president. Um, and formed this new so-called Bull Moose Party or Progressive Party. And the Progressive Party platform of 1912 is well worth reading. It is the blueprint for 20th century liberalism. 20th, modern liberalism is the working out of the Progressive Party platform of 1912 in some ways. Some of it is implemented in the New Deal. Some of it is implemented in the Great Society. Some of it, like universal health insurance, has still not been implemented a hundred years later. And then, of course, there was Woodrow Wilson running as the Democratic Party uh, candidate, um, also a progressive. Every one of those three people claimed to be part of the progressive movement and claimed to have an answer to the inequalities of wealth and corporate power. And then there was Eugene Debs running as the socialist candidate. Uh, and not, a, not likely to win, but a part of the political campaign. And in 1912, Socialism appeared to be a rising force, not only in the United States, but elsewhere. In Germany, the Social Democratic Party, the largest in the West, had almost a majority of the Reichstag, the parliament. They seemed to be on the verge of coming to power through, electoral, through the electoral process in Germany. In uh, Finland, the Social Democrats were up around 40% uh, uh, or in, of, of the vote in that district. In Austria, 25%. In Britain, the Labour Party, which had a socialist um, platform, uh, was a major factor in, you know, in, British uh, um, in British politics. So in 1912, of course, Wilson is elected. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt comes in second, Taft, and then Debs has his over 900,000 votes, or 6% of the total. Debs gets 6% of the total. Not, you know, a tremendous amount, but enough to be a factor in the, in the election. In the same year, Max Hayes, running as a socialist for, for president of the American Federation of Labor against Samuel Gompers, gets one-third of the vote in the American Federation of Labor annual convention. So there's a socialist presence there. The largest weekly periodical in the nation is a socialist magazine called The Appeal to Reason, which had over 700,000 subscribers, more than the Saturday Evening Post or Harper's Magazine or things like that. Um, which the, the Appeal to Reason, um, I'm going to show you something from The Appeal to Reason here. Uh, it, it published all sorts of articles, some of them uh, uh, wait, 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 uh, here we go. Ah, some of them odd, we'll see this in a minute. Articles about socialism, articles about uh, 
uh, uh, capitalism by Debs, side by side with all sorts of oddball ads. Here's, here's some ads from the, uh, here you have Helen Keller's book, Out of the Dark. Keller, a socialist, people don't remember that when they talk about her work for the blind. Socialist penance, socialist move with the movies. Get into the culture, how to be a successful speech, et cetera, et cetera. Socialist watch at an antitrust uh, price. You know, um, they had ads for gold stocks and patent medicines and medicines to cure the ills of wage slavery, things like that. So it, it was a popular and kind of offbeat, but uh, serious magazine. Um, their most popular columnist was a guy called Warbling Wilbur every week, and a, a one agent, Louis Clamroth, on a bicycle, traveled around the Great Plains and sold over 100,000 subscriptions to the appeal uh, to reason. But it was only one of 300 socialist newspapers and magazines in the country at the, in that year. In New York City, the, the Jewish Daily Forward here in New York, a Yiddish daily newspaper, had 150,000 daily readers. The National Ripsaw, another one, 150,000 readers. Socialism was, so the Socialist Party was not only concentrated among workers, but among, uh, uh, as I say, small farmers, small towns, and a, a few ethnic groups, not all by any means, some are strong in some ethnic groups. Even a few millionaires joined the Socialist Party. Most uh, prominently, Gaylord Wilshire, who, after whom Wilshire Boulevard in uh, LA is named. The Socialist Party attracted intellectuals like Upton Sinclair and Jack London, middle-class reformers, we'll talk about them pretty soon, Charlotte Perkins Gilman and Margaret Sanger come out of the socialist milieu. Uh, many women's suffrage advocates are connected with socialism. Um, socialism is coming, says the appeal to reason in 1912. Socialism is coming. It's coming like a prairie fire. Nothing can stop it. The next few years will give the nation to the Socialist Party, this optimism. But if you looked more closely in 1912, you would also see some real serious weaknesses. The Socialist Party was not attracting the new immigrant working class, the factory workers, the people who were transforming once again the nature of American work and, and uh, working class life. The working class is being remade, again, by massive immigration, but outside New York City, most of the socialist appeal is to either old immigrants, not the new ones, or middle class or lower middle class farmers, et cetera, et cetera. The real challenge was how could they appeal to the new immigrant worker in the heart of American industry, if they're going to claim to be the party of, of workers. And next time, we will see how the Socialist Party and the Industrial Workers of the World tries to address this problem of how to organize the new industrial proletariat. So that's all for today. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.